Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Whether you're speaking morally or politically, it is just wrong to say that pro-life states are making a mistake in passing pro-life legislation. And I worry that Trump is giving aid to people who are politically averse to doing the right thing on abortion law. There are people who are absolutely sure that there are no absolutes. And the statement that there are no absolutes is an absolute statement. So that statement violates the law of non-contradiction and can therefore not be true. The woke are not having their own children. My friends on the left have zero to two kids. My friends on the right have two to 12 kids. And so they're not making their own kids. So I think that their hope is to take ours and raise ours and indoctrinate ours. Salvation is forgiveness. Salvation is new life in Christ, not affirmation of our desires. God didn't give the gospel to affirm us. He gave the gospel to save us. This is Brian from Dallas. Texas dove hunters love issues, etc. in the field. Adios, palomas. The gospel that is good news for everyone else is also good news for us Christians. If a preacher wants to motivate his people toward spreading the gospel, evangelism is the term, of course, then he should preach that evangel. He should preach that good news to them. That will move them to proclaim the good news in their own lives as well. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Friday afternoon, September the 22nd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be continuing our series on evangelism with Dr. Ken Sherb talking about preaching and teaching for evangelism. Then we'll spend some time with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Part nine of our Kids Have Questions series. Today we'll talk about life in the church and practicing the faith. Dr. Ken Sherb has a PhD in church history from Ohio State University. He's Director of Evangelism and Missions, Stewardship and Human Care for the Central Illinois District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, formerly served as a theology professor at Concordia University, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and as an assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Ken, welcome back. Hey, Todd, lot to talk about here today. Let's deal with a few cautionary questions. Can an emphasis on evangelism turn legalistic? Yes, it can, but... Of course, it can't be a short and simple answer to the question. First of all, because you use that loaded term, legalistic or legalism. What exactly is legalism? Sometimes people think that whenever the law of God is being respected and taught and applied, that's legalism. Well, no, that in itself is not legalism. Basically, legalism amounts to one or the other of two things, and it could actually be both of these. Number one is what Jesus said to the Pharisees in his day, that they were teaching as the doctrines of God, the commandments of men, holding people to things that God never said. And the other is that people have a tendency to use the law, and sometimes even the real legitimate law of God, to do what really only the gospel alone can do, and that is to feed and nourish the new man. 
Martin Chemnitz made an observation back in the 16th century that the ancient church fathers sometimes were not very careful in the way they taught about good works. Chemnitz said that many of them, and I'm quoting here, bent the article of justification in the direction of works and merits. And thus, quoting again, they were burying Christ and his benefits because these church fathers were trying to fight false spiritual security and urge a burning zeal for good works. Chemnitz also reported how some people in his own day said, quoting again, in the great carnal security of this world, our minds seem to be more readily stimulated to zeal for good works if they are taught as necessary to salvation. Well, Chemnitz, of course, rejected that idea that good works are necessary for salvation, and he observed that the fathers often used long exhortations in praise of good works. But as a result of this, the purity of the article of justification was lost. In other words, the purity of the article of justification can be lost simply by an emphasis without teaching anything that is in and of itself wrong, just by overemphasizing the importance of good works, the necessity to do good works, not even necessity for salvation, just the necessity to do good works, we can really run afoul of the proper distinction between law and gospel, and we really do need to be observing that distinction. It's not observed, for example, when, like I heard an evangelism leader some years ago say, I used to try to motivate people for evangelism by the law. I used to tell them that they had to get out there and do that. They had to get out there and do it. They had to get out there and do it. Now I motivate them by the gospel, he says. I tell them how to do it. Well, simply telling them how to do something is not yet the gospel. The gospel is the good news of forgiveness and life on account of the work of Christ for us poor sinners. And when we do hear that, it's amazing what can happen. C.F.W. Walther said, suppose you have been in this situation, and you probably have. Maybe you've been kind of lethargic in your Christian life, but you go and you hear a real gospel sermon at church, one that really presses home the love of God in Christ for you, that the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of your sins. And now all of a sudden you walk out of church like a changed man. I mean, you're willing to do all sorts of things, and not that anybody is forcing you. This is exactly what you want to do. You want to do what God says. You want to live the Christ-like life. So no forced gifts here. The preacher, in other words, is not acting like a policeman in the congregation, but he's changing hearts through the constant reiteration of the saving gospel. My home congregation had a growth spurt back years ago, in fact, when I was a kid. And it wasn't because we had any formal evangelism strategy, even. People simply heard the good news about Christ, and they went out and they were telling their neighbors, literally their next-door neighbors. That congregation grew without a plan. Why is it important for us Christians to be told over and over again that the gospel is good news for everyone else and is also good news for us? Well, because we are sinners, and we understand that. We live with the law. It's written on our hearts. The massive guilt of all of our sin impends upon us, and 
we know that we haven't done what we should do in the cause of evangelism is a cause of significant guilt for Christians. And not just guilt feelings. I'm talking about real guilt because of real sin. Now, I see people sometimes trying to relieve that guilt by simply sort of giving people a pass and saying, well, if it's not really in your personality, if you're not all that outgoing or something like that, then maybe you shouldn't be all that worried about evangelism. You really don't have to do it. Would we say that about other things? Would we say, if it's really not in your personality to be a good husband or wife, you don't really have to worry about that? Or if it's not in your personality to be a good parent? In other words, the way to solve a problem with sin is not by lightening up on the law, in this case, not lightening up even on the obligation of love that we Christians owe to our neighbors to tell them the good news that is a saving good news. No, don't lighten up on the law. Give the gospel, because we have forgiveness in Christ. Luther once said that Christ's living, speaking, and dying are yours, just as if you had personally done these things. And, of course, the Christ who died for us under the weight of all of our sin lives. He lives to apply his own righteousness to us, to give that to us, to justify us. It is God who justifies who is going to condemn. And so St. John could say, I write this to you that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that because you have the unconditional gospel of good news in Christ pronouncing you righteous. Now, it's true, Todd, we Christians tend to see forgiveness as a bigger need for ourselves than, by and large, non-churched people do. But we have to start with the fact that God forgives our sins. He does give this thing that we need, well, more than the very air we breathe. And when we recognize that forgiveness in Christ, we have a greater appreciation of the God who is pardoning us. And when people really get that sense, like Walther said, they walk out of church, change people. When people get that the gospel is for them, well, watch out. That home church growth spurt that I was talking about a while ago at my home congregation, that was caused because people really got the gospel. And they went in that situation to their neighbors who were lapsed Roman Catholics or inactive Roman Catholics and were just sponges for this. They were so, so pleased and rejoicing to hear a message of full and free forgiveness. So it's important, and I've been urging here in this series, that we do some how-tos with respect to evangelism. And I will continue to say they are important, those how-tos, but they are a fraction of what we need to be teaching. Fundamentally, our evangelistic activity needs to be rooted in the gospel. Think of what David says in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. That's what's going to happen when we hear and take to heart the good news. We're going to want to teach people his ways. Do we need more preaching on evangelism? Yeah, you know, you've had as a guest Lyman Stone, who does these Lutheran religious life surveys. He's done a couple of them now. And in both 2021 and 2022, the answer to that has generally been yes. Also in 2022, I think he found that the people who say they want more preaching on evangelism outnumber across the various groups that he surveys, the classifications that he makes of his survey population, they outnumber others. So in other words, there's more people saying that they do want more preaching on evangelism than those who don't. In 2022, the survey said among pastors, 63% say we need more preaching on evangelism. Other church workers, 64%. Lay people, 51%. Now that's just a slight majority, but it is a majority. We surveyed Central Illinois District pastors earlier this year, as you and I have been talking about in this series. I asked them that very same question. Do we need to be preaching? Do you need to be preaching more on evangelism? I gave them a kind of a 1 to 10 scale. It came out 4.9, just about right smack dab in the middle. So in other words, about half of the pastors responding to the survey uh, think we need to preach more about evangelism, and the other half not so much. But if you've got as many as half thinking you need to preach more about it, I think that's a significant point to note. Then I went on and asked, well, what are the particular subtopics with regard to evangelism that perhaps could be subjects for preaching? Motivation for evangelism scored very high in their responses. The privilege and responsibility for lay people to engage in evangelism scored almost as high as the motivation. The lowest item was practical tips for telling the good news about Jesus. And I can understand that. Sermons are probably not the best place for interactive description and instruction. But still, sermons can do some things. And there can be, for example, special series of sermons on a subject like apologetics. And throughout the year, and this is probably the best of all, just to take the evangelism cues from the ordinary scripture lessons where they are and bring out that kind of import where it is in the text. Dr. Ken Sherb is our guest. It's part four of our series with him on evangelism today, preaching and teaching for evangelism. What might teachers say as they preach to encourage and guide evangelism in their congregations? There are at least two ways to see the Messiah's presence in the Old Testament. The chief would be the Lord's messenger. Dr. Reed Lessing, co-author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. The second way we see the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament would be through God's glory. Learn more about the Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. 
In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. The Light of God's Word in a World of Darkness. You're listening to Issues Etc. Greetings in Christ, and thank you for listening to Issues Etc. If your vocation or travel lands you in northwest Louisiana, come and be our guest at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Bowser City, Louisiana. Join us as we gather around God's gift of word and sacrament. That's Emmanuel Lutheran Church, Bowser City, Louisiana. For service times and directions, look us up at ilcbosier.net. ilcbosier.net. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Here's a little bit about the prophet Isaiah from our Issues Etc. Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message. In some places, the Old Testament flows like a brook toward its fulfillment in the Messiah. In other places, it may be likened to a quiet backwater or small stream. In Isaiah, though, we come upon a rushing river that moves us mightily toward the New Testament's proclamation that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. Find out more about the Messianic message, predictions, patterns, and the presence of Jesus in the Old Testament at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order the Messianic Message, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. It's part four of our series on evangelism. Today we're talking about preaching and teaching for evangelism with Dr. Ken Sherb, Director of Evangelism and Missions, Stewardship and Human Care for the Central Illinois District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Ken, what might preachers say when they do that preaching to encourage and guide evangelism in their congregations? Well, I'm put in mind of a thing that uh, I heard from Dr. Dale Meyer when he was still teaching while president at Concordia Seminary St. Louis. In one class that he used to teach, he told the students at the beginning of the class, now in your sermons this quarter, I do not want you to do anything to encourage evangelism. Don't say a word about it. And he said usually about halfway through the course, students would ask, well, why in the world did you make that requirement? I mean, we're just wondering, is that how you want us to do this ordinarily? He says, no, actually, when you get out of this class, I think you should encourage evangelism as much as you can. But while you're in this class, I'm trying to get you to learn to preach the gospel so sweetly that even without you saying a word overtly to encourage it, people are going to want to do it. Now, that's the first point, I think, that could be made about evangelistic preaching. It goes back to what we were saying just at the top of this interview. The gospel needs to be the beating heart of it all. 
specifically, maybe, Todd, more to your point of the question, preachers can tell witnessing stories, the kind of witnessing stories we've started to tell from our listeners. And I'm always reminded of my old boss, former Synod President Al Berry, who used to do a lot of speaking about Jesus with the person sitting next to him on an airplane. And he would come back and he would tell stories about his latest encounter with somebody, his latest opportunity to tell the good news. And sometimes he would put that kind of thing into his sermons. My favorite seminary professor, Robert Preuss, very often would preach in the seminary chapel and tell stories of how he had a chance to tell somebody the good news, Jehovah's Witnesses, people at a social gathering. Very often he was emphasizing the kind of anatomy of unbelief to get us to understand what was going on in the minds of these people he had had real conversations with. But he would also talk about what he said in addition to that. Now, I got to admit, in my own preaching, Todd, in the parish, I did this kind of thing occasionally. In retrospect, I don't think I did it enough because a pastor especially when he's talking about his own evangelism opportunities and how he's followed up on them, can be modeling for people. He can be giving them an idea of how it really can work. It's good for people to hear also that their pastor is actually doing this. One of the things Lyman Stone has found out in his surveys is that pastors are more likely to engage in personal evangelism than others are. So if people hear how the pastor is doing it, that can be a shot in the arm for them. Another thing that Al Berry's stories did about witnessing on the plane, they encouraged other people to try and find a niche, maybe for somebody else that particular niche for being especially attentive to telling the good news might not be a seat on a plane. Maybe you don't fly all that much. But he did recommend that people have that kind of a field in life where they were going to be especially attentive to telling the good news. His wife, Jean, was a cancer survivor, and she made it her a point to talk to other women who were also breast cancer survivors. Now, something like that, just having a niche, is a general suggestion that can be made in a sermon. It's not too detailed. For greater detail and greater depth, you may need to go to another mode of communication. You may need to go to Bible classes in your Christian education program. In that Christian education program, where do people learn witnessing skills? Now, that's a good question. That's a question that I asked in our survey to the Central Illinois District Pastors. The survey asked specifically, where in your congregation's Christian education program do people learn these witnessing skills to listen discerningly to a non-churched person, to just begin a spiritual conversation in the first place, to make a simple statement of the gospel, and to make the case for the resurrection? Those four things. And on the survey form, we listed a number of different things that usually come up in congregations, youth catechism, adult catechism, Sunday school, adult Bible class, youth ministry, retreats. We offered an opportunity for people to fill in other things if they had others to fill in. Let me just give you the statistics for adult Bible class. These pastors said that In adult Bible class, people were learning to begin a spiritual conversation 
89% of those responding said, yeah, that's something they're learning in adult Bible class, to begin a spiritual conversation. Making a simple statement of the gospel, 87% said they're learning that in the class. Making a defense of the resurrection, 91% said people are learning that in adult Bible class. Listening discerningly to a non-church person, 72%, not quite as high. Those did not tend to be as high in any of our categories for any of these Christian education opportunities. Tells me that listening is a skill we're not teaching as much as we're teaching the others just by our own admission. Another, youth catechism. 62% said in youth catechism, we're teaching people to begin a spiritual conversation. 74% said that in youth catechism, we're teaching people to make a simple statement of the gospel. 59% said in youth catechism, we're teaching them to make a defense of the resurrection. And 34% said we're teaching them to listen discerningly to a non-churched person. Now, Todd, I tend to think that these figures are inflated. Why do you think they're inflated? Well, I'm not necessarily saying that the pastors responding to the survey were lying. I'm sure that these are subjects that got touched on anyway in all these various places, adult Bible class, youth catechism, adult catechism, whatever it may be. But I do wonder whether they're being more than just touched on. And that's my first point in responding to your question. I think we need to do more than simply mention these things and then maybe mention something along the same lines again a month later or perhaps two months later. Remember, the measure of learning is not what the teacher says or how well the teacher says it for that matter, but what people take with them. So if People are learning, for example, to begin a spiritual conversation in 89% of our adult Bible classes. Then we should have people who are highly trained to begin a spiritual conversation. And I think if you talk to the typical person from those Bible classes, they wouldn't necessarily say that. You see, all of these things, whether you're talking about listening to a non-churched person, beginning a spiritual conversation, making a simple statement of the gospel, making the case for the resurrection— to one extent or another, these are all skills, and you have to teach skills differently than you teach simple rote head knowledge. For example, Todd, you went to seminary, and they said, we're going to teach you to preach. Now, there's a lot of head knowledge involved with that, but there's also a skill involved with that. So you get into the class on preaching, and they teach you about the history of preaching. You read sermons by great preachers. You learn all kinds of things about theoretically how to write a sermon, construct a sermon, but you don't ever actually write or preach a sermon. Would anybody say that they had really learned to preach as a result of a class like that? And what professor would say when it's all over, I taught them to preach? just by doing those things. Or how about playing the organ? Suppose somebody is going to try to learn to play the organ, and his organ instructor tells him all about organ design, the history of the organ, what all the notes are on the keyboard, maybe hears great compositions by great composers that were written for the organ in years past, but never actually touches a keyboard. Again, 
Who would say that they actually learned to play the organ after that kind of instruction? And who would say, I taught somebody to play the organ that way? Well, I just fear that we've got pastors and maybe others in congregations who are thinking that we're teaching people to do things in that kind of a mode, and it's just not going to be filling the bill. That's why Resolution 101A from the latest Missouri Synod Convention that we talked about in the first interview in this series singles out these very things we've been talking about beginning a spiritual conversation, listening discerningly to a non-churched person, making a simple statement of the gospel, making the case for the resurrection, and asks, now where in your Christian education program are you teaching these things? And where, this is very significant, where are you giving people an opportunity to practice these things? Because practice is going to have to come into it. Dr. Ken Sherb is our guest. It's part four of our series with him on evangelism, today preaching and teaching for evangelism. Are there things that congregations should avoid? You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. St. Peter encourages us, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That is where we get the Greek word for apologetics, that is to defend the Christian faith. The September issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the topics of apologetics and archaeology and discusses both of them in detail with articles from Paul Meyer, Sarah Rinsel, Mark Meal, and David Adams. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for 
faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. On this Friday, September the 22nd, we continue our series on evangelism with Dr. Ken Sherb, talking about preaching and teaching for evangelism. Ken, what should churches avoid as they try to teach basic evangelism skills? Yeah, as you're teaching basic evangelism skills, I think there's a number of potential pitfalls. One is the one we've kind of been talking about already. In fact, preachers fall into this with respect to a lot of things. In fact, some people even call it the preacher's fallacy. The preacher's fallacy is to uh, say on Tuesday after Sunday's sermon, you know, people aren't doing this. And I wonder why. Because I told them. See, that's the preacher's fallacy. I told them. Well, maybe you did tell them. But did you say it often? Did you say it rather briefly? Just touching on it. Did you say it abstractly? Did you say it understandably? Did you beseech them by the mercies of God if this is something that they're really supposed to try to do? That's one pitfall, potentially. Another pitfall is just sending people out to tell the good news just by themselves, nobody to model it for them, nobody to help them in the process. I fear we tend to do that a lot. We say, oh, yeah, get out there and do it, and we even motivate them with the gospel to go out there and do it, but then once they get out there, they're kind of unsure what the next move is to make. Another problem that we can have as we try to teach basic evangelism skills and other things in the church is just moving on too soon to some other topic, not giving a subject its due, as it were. I sometimes teach a course at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne for the Doctor of Ministry students in pedagogy for congregational teaching. And one of the things that I'm constantly saying in that class is teach less, better. Teach less, better. In other words, don't try to cover so many things that you've got to cover each of them very briefly. Now, another variation on that is when you run out of time to cover things, let's say, B, C, and D, because you have gone into such great depth on item A that you've taken all your time to do that. Pastors sometimes can have a tendency to want to tell people everything they know about a Bible passage. After years of study in seminary, after hours of work preparing a sermon or a Bible class, this temptation to tell people everything you know is very powerful. And one of the things that the pastor and the teacher in the classroom has to do is to say, okay, they pay me in part to make some determinations here. What do my people need to hear? What does this particular group before me right now need to hear today? 
I may be able to come back to this later on, and I may be able to say more, but what do they need today? And that might not be everything that you know about the subject. So both quantitatively and qualitatively, we need to teach better, and sometimes that's teaching better by teaching less. What kind of settings do we need to teach basic evangelism skills? Well, we've been talking here about sermons, and and sermons are good, as we said. A lot of people think that we should be preaching more about evangelism, and I would not disagree, not at all. But sermons are not going to do the entire job. Likewise, radio programs, podcasts like this one are not going to do the entire job. One of the reasons why I wanted to get evangelism stories from the audience was to bring a little bit more reality into this situation, put people, put listeners into the position of actually being able to think about a situation that somebody else was in that they themselves might be in. The next step, of course, in a real live setting, Congregation's Christian Education Program might be role-playing. I know a congregation here in Springfield that is starting in its catechism class to build in a component where the kids actually practice telling the good news about Jesus in the catechism class. And there's actual team evangelism. You can combine your instruction with actual work in evangelism. And we tend these days not to be thinking in terms of witness on more than an individual level. The idea of corporate efforts at witness has not been real popular, at least in the circles I move in these days. And I think we ought to try to bring those back. And a good place to bring them back might be Canvas, where you go out and you knock on doors and you conduct a brief conversation and invite somebody to come to church. Some formal evangelism activity like that does have its advantages. For example, it can give people an opportunity. They might be limited elsewhere. They may want to be telling their co-workers at work the good news about Jesus, but the rules of the company might restrict that kind of thing. People might be cherry about trying it at work for that reason. So this gives them an additional opportunity. It gives them experience where they can observe, where they can see how people react, where they can watch as others are actually doing this kind of thing and and, and learn from that, that example. And they can get a chance to try it themselves with other people around who are going to be supportive and can help them. And this kind of training where you learn by doing will, I think, transfer to personal vocational witnessing in everybody's own walks of life more often than we think. You learn a couple of basic skills in an organized setting, and now you've got something to take into your personal conversation with a friend or a family member. Speaking of preaching and teaching, does misunderstanding sometimes enter in between pastors and their hearers when it comes to those matters of evangelism? Let me go back to these Lyman Stone studies, especially the most recent one. Stone found that lay people sometimes get the wrong idea. They will hear, for example, and agree with this statement. The Holy Spirit works regardless of what churches do. And people who agree with that statement are only half as likely, he has found, to invite a friend to church as others. Now, it could be that pastors making that statement or supporting that statement when others say it have 
something else in mind than what the people are actually hearing. They might think that they're ruling out gimmicks or revival tactics when they say the Holy Spirit works regardless of what churches do. They may see this as an affirmation of God's grace, that it is God alone who gets 100% of the credit for our salvation because the Holy Spirit does all the work of converting us. But the question is, do people hear that as an expression of unconcern, that we really don't have to be all that hepped up about evangelism? If we're not speaking the gospel, do we really have any reason to think that the Holy Spirit is working salvifically? See, this raises the question that that Stone is raising. Do lay people think that the Holy Spirit works without means? And he theorizes that we've got at least some people who do think that, that the Holy Spirit works without means. Can pastors and teachers lead people to think this? Well, yeah, they might say, for example, God's elect will be saved no matter what you do. You've got to be careful with a statement like that because that might suggest to people that God's elect are going to be saved without anybody, anybody telling them the gospel. But see, in fact, your witness may be the speaking of the gospel that actually is used by the Holy Spirit to bring a person to faith. Now, a variation on that statement, the elect will be saved no matter what you do is this, the elect will be saved even if you do nothing. The elect will be saved even if you do nothing. That's a really charged statement, and it needs to be made in just the right time and place. See, I think, Todd, this is a matter of law and gospel. Go back to your basics about law and gospel. The law is to be preached to the impenitent, to those who are got a hard shell because of their sin, The gospel needs to be preached to those who are penitent. The election of grace is pure gospel. Despite what some people think in the Christian world, there is no such thing as double predestination. God does not choose people to go to hell. He only chooses people to go to heaven. And because there's no double predestination, the election of grace is pure gospel. Well, if you give a smug sinner the doctrine of election, the gospel, when he needs to hear the law, that can definitely be a problem. For example, in a similar way, it was a very striking statement of the gospel when Luther said somewhere that there is forgiveness for us in Christ even if we murdered and whored a thousand times a day. Now, that statement is true. It definitely has to be true if grace is to be grace. And, of course, grace is grace undeserved love, on account of Christ. But when you're properly distinguishing between law and gospel, you would never use that expression. You would never say God's going to forgive you even if you sin a thousand times a day or something like that. You would never say that to a secure sinner. If this guy is secure in his sin, you don't want him to think that it doesn't make any difference, that he's got permission, in fact, in the gospel to go ahead and sin some more. And so likewise, If a Christian is looking for some excuse to evade evangelistic responsibility, nobody should come along and tell them, well, the elect are going to be saved no matter what you do. You can be completely inactive about the whole thing. Don't worry about it. See, that would be speaking gospel words where the law is needed. On the other hand, 
when Christians are troubled by their sin, by their sin in general, and maybe in particular by their failures to tell the good news, well, that's not the time to be reminding them of their responsibilities, even the responsibilities they have that arise from love. See, that would be speaking the law when the gospel is needed. Christians who are troubled over their sins can certainly be told that they are sheep who hear the shepherd's voice and no one will snatch them out of his hand. They can even be told that none of God's elect will be lost on account of their failures to witness, even if they did nothing, because none of the elect will be lost. It's a matter of the proper distinction between law and gospel. Now, let me go one step further, though, Todd. This statement, the elect will be saved even if you do nothing. you got to remember, with regard to that statement, God and how he has chosen to bring his salvation to people. He has chosen to bring salvation to his elect, not immediately, without means, but precisely through his means of grace, the gospel and sacraments. So if no one were to bring the gospel and sacraments to people, no one would be saved. But God does have his elect, and they will be saved through those means of grace which God has determined to bring to the world through the church. So the statement, the elect will be saved even if you do nothing, is not a good general statement to be proclaimed to the whole church. You never see Jesus. You never see the apostles saying that. On the contrary, they say, go out and preach the gospel to every creature. Tell the good news. Dr. Ken Sherb is our guest. Preaching and teaching for evangelism is our topic. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, is hosting its Prayerfully Consider visit October 12th through the 14th. This free event allows men and women and their families to explore pastoral and diaconal formation. Learn more at ctsfw.edu or by calling Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155. On the other side, we'll get a summary of what we've discussed. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc.
Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. The Biblical Worldview Conference is Saturday, November 4th in Chicago. This year's theme is, For Such a Time as This, Discernment, Boldness, and Compassion. Brian Wolfmiller, John Bombaro, and others will be speaking on gender-solid parenting, wokeism in schools, transgender pronouns, and sharing Christ in a woke culture. For more information, visit worldviewchicago.org. The Biblical Worldview Conference, November 4th in Chicago, worldviewchicago.org. Dr. Ken Sherb is our guest. It's part four of our series with him on evangelism today, preaching and teaching for evangelism. Ken, we've had a lot to say here. How would you summarize it? We need more preaching on evangelism, starting with calling us all to repentance. Repentance also for our lack of involvement in telling the good news about Jesus. The gospel needs to be applied to us over this matter as well. And sermons can also tell stories and provide models that can help people. Evangelism skills, such as listening discerningly, beginning a spiritual conversation, making a simple presentation of the gospel, and defending the resurrection, need not only to be talked about, but also practiced. And we need to find places where we can give people some practice in those things. Preachers and teachers should be careful not to give people the unbiblical and unlutheran impression that the Holy Spirit will work to save people even without the proclamation of God's Word. Now, Todd, let me give you some true or false items that you can chew on together with our listeners. First item, true or false. Legalism can enter efforts to get people to evangelize as a result of emphasis. True. It may be that nobody says anything that is in and of itself false or wrong or unbiblical, but just as a matter of emphasis, you can have legalism seeping in. That's the kind of thing that we noted when we talked about the quote from Martin Chemnitz at the beginning of this interview. And the problem is that after an emphasis shifts, sooner or later, other things start shifting too. Formal statements start shifting. People start thinking that what it's all about is, for example, with evangelism, they're getting out there and they're telling the good news. Well, no, what it's really all about in the ultimate is Christ, who answers for your sin, meets your death, wins your victory. You're not going to get far with evangelism until you understand and believe the gospel is really for you. Another statement, true or false? My congregation is doing all it can not only to give people the why of evangelism, but also the how. Well, I'm not going to give an answer here, Todd, because I'm not going to try to answer for everybody's congregation. But I would suggest 
that giving people the how involves identifying some key witnessing skills and giving people the opportunity to put them into practice. Another statement, true or false. The Holy Spirit grants grace and blessing and salvation through the gospel. True. So let's not even begin to suggest to people that he works in some other way. He will work through his word. Conversion is not affected by the cooperation of the person that we're talking to or the persuasiveness of the person doing the talking. It's no more true in one-to-one communication of the gospel than it is in preaching a sermon from a pulpit. But it is important in both of those cases to speak and not be silent. You have a couple of witnessing stories? Yeah, this is interesting. We've gotten more from you. Talk back at issuesetc.org. Talk back at issuesetc.org or calls in on the issues, etc. comment line. Jeff told me before we started here that somebody actually did call in, so we'll try to get to that in uh, the future. The telephone number there is 618-223-8382. Again, 618-223-8382. In any case, contact us by email, contact us by phone. Give us your witnessing story. This one comes from Eve, who says, Years ago, I was driving my daughter and a very talented young man to a seminar in Indianapolis. By the way, I'm telling this story because it underlines what we're talking about today, the importance of the word in witness. So again, Eve writes, We left driving early in the morning for a three-hour trip. The young man and other friends had been gathering at our home to work on history essays once a week for a challenging high school AP class. Occasionally, he would come into my kitchen and talk a little. To the best of my understanding, he attended a church occasionally, but he had very little understanding of the Christian faith. So as we began our drive in the dark on a chilly fall morning, this very bright young man began to ask me questions about Christ and salvation. The questions were very challenging, and I wanted to answer accurately and truthfully. However, Eve writes, I have never been very good at memorizing Scripture, very poor, in fact. Then an amazing thing happened. I began to say, well, the Bible says, and continued to answer the questions with direct passages of Scripture and then explained them with other passages for almost the entire drive. He listened and questioned, and the Holy Spirit provided me with words. My daughter, who had attended Lutheran school through sixth grade, was quiet But when I glanced at her, as the dawn brightened, I could see that she was open-eyed and amazed at this discussion. The young man began to attend a local youth group. There was no Lutheran church in his community. And from my daughter, I learned that he was a believer, although I don't know any details further than that. And in parentheses, Eve adds, truthfully, to this day, I still cannot quote scripture more than one sentence at a time. Well, the use of the word in witness, and it's remarkable how the Holy Spirit will bring things to our memory. Sometimes that can be nothing short of miraculous. Sometimes it can be the Holy Spirit working through what we have learned. Don't ever underestimate what you have learned. That study that you put into the word in Sunday school, in Bible class, on your own, you have no idea when it's going to come back and when it's going to be enormously, enormously appropriate. 
It's part four of our series on evangelism with Dr. Ken Sherb, preaching and teaching for evangelism. He has another evangelism story to tell after the break. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. In a world awash with all sorts of information, opinions, and ideas, there is still a place where God's Word is the central and only focus. Messiah Lutheran Church, 801 North Madison, Lebanon, Illinois. At 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, God's people gather there to listen to Him. There you will find His words of law and gospel, and of course, our Lord's Holy Supper. Bible classes focus on the Bible and the Lutheran Confessions. Come, listen, believe, and live, and check out our website at messiahlebanon.org. Join us September 29th at 7 p.m. for a hymn festival celebrating the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels at Good Shepherd Lutheran in Collinsville, Illinois. Hymn commentary will be provided by Pastor Will Whedon, host of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever podcast, along with organist Chris Lemker, orchestra, and choir. For more information or to register to sing in the choir, visit our website, withangelsandarchangels.org. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about evangelism and preaching and teaching for evangelism with Dr. Ken Sherb, Director of Evangelism and Mission Stewardship and Human Care for the Central Illinois District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Luther Academy is a worldwide evangelistic outreach. Luther Academy promotes confessional Lutheran theology through conferences, scholarly exchanges, and publications. For more information on their work, visit lutheracademy.com, serving Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth, lutheracademy.com. Ken, before the break, you were telling us one of the stories from our listeners. Were there more? Yeah, here's another one. This one comes from Adam, and he's not just any Adam. He's a pastor. It's kind of long. I'll kind of paraphrase this. He's talking about my conclusion here, Todd, is you can have confidence in the power of the Word even when it's God telling somebody no. And that's a hard thing. That can be a hard thing even for pastors. But this Adam writes that he was approached by a couple to do a second marriage for both of them. And in the process of conversing with them, he found out that the woman was Jewish. And he said he would not be able to do their wedding because God's word says, 2 Corinthians 6, that we should not be unequally yoked. But he said if they were open to it, he would go and talk with them, go over the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, 
They agreed to that. They began to talk once a week. And about the fifth time they were getting together to talk, the woman got the strangest look on her face. Her eyes were wide open. Her head was thrown back. And she said in an excited voice, I get it. I get it. He's the Savior. He's my Savior. I mean, she was professing Jesus as Lord and Savior right there in her kitchen. But that's not all. A couple of years later, this same pastor was calling up a company to talk with them about getting a cooling system for his house, and he happened to mention that he was a pastor in such and such a town and that they had a lot of church gatherings over at his house, and that was part of the reason why he was so concerned to get the cooling system straight. And the lady on the other end of the phone that he's talking to through this business telephone call says, well, what kind of church is it? And he says, well, Lutheran, why do you ask? And the lady says, because about two years ago, my mom started going to a Lutheran church in your city after a pastor there was used by God to bring her into the faith. Now, my mom raised me to be a good Jewish woman, but she was so excited about Jesus, she told me, all the other passages that they had gone through that she and the pastor had studied. Long story short, the lady says on the phone, I became a Christian too, and I told about Jesus to my husband. He became a believer in Christ as well. We shared the gospel with our children, and they too were converted. So this was a domino effect, and that very often happens, and it's the kind of thing that just makes you awestruck with the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working through the words, the kind of thing St. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He was just amazed that they were holding fast and holding forth with the gospel, even under persecution. Don't lose confidence in the power of God's word. Again, even when it starts your conversation by telling them God's word says no concerning something. Ken, I understand you've been receiving more than stories via email and the issues, etc. come outline. Tell us about what else has been coming in. Yeah, I've gotten a few things, and again, they're relatively lengthy. I want to give this one its due, though. This is an Adam, and again, a pastor who's writing, and he says, in part three of your series on evangelism, Dr. Ken Sherb encouraged congregations to continue to live stream or post recorded services online as a tool to reach the unchurched. As with many of these discussions about the church using the Internet, Dr. Sherb spoke only of the potential benefits without mentioning potential costs. These are a few of those we might consider. First, the technology that makes the Internet possible is inert and has been compared to previous advances like the printing press, radio, and television, all of which the church has used for salutary purposes. However, the platforms many churches use to stream their services are not inert. The printing press is neither good nor evil, but you would not print a devotion in a pornographic magazine. In the same way, a building is inert, but even though lots of men and women who need to hear the law and gospel might be there, you would not have the divine service at a table in a strip club. Like the pornographic magazine, that building exists to entice people to break the Sixth Commandment. Many Internet platforms exist to entice people, and the algorithms that are given that task have no moral compass. Second, although we don't completely understand why, there is no doubt that social media platforms are terribly addictive and are doing great harm to our society, especially to our children. 
You have had many guests on Issues Etc. who have confirmed this. By posting services on these platforms, we are endorsing, encouraging, and giving our blessing to their use. Let me just pause in the reading, Todd, to say a couple of things. I understand the concern about where precisely your online service may be posted. A lot of churches I am aware of either put it on their own website or they link from their website to a YouTube channel. In my observation, and this may be a shallow observation, YouTube is more like the street your church is on than, say, a building devoted to some ungodly purpose. I mean, we wouldn't necessarily refuse to build a church on a street because there might be a strip club a couple of blocks down. Likewise, I don't think it's that big a problem to put your church service on YouTube where, yeah, there may be terrible things, but there's also any number of good things, and people go onto YouTube for any number of good things, just like they'll go down that street outside your church for any number of good reasons. Well, continuing with the email from the pastor here, he writes, finally, there is a cost that is unique to confessional Lutheran congregations. Unlike the services at typical big-box evangelical churches, our liturgy is not a spectator sport. Posting our services online gives the impression that it is possible to participate in the liturgy of the church from home, when that's really not possible. Well, actually, I agree with what the pastor says here, Todd. In fact, I observe that even if there is an unbeliever in the building at the church service, he's not worshiping there. Even if he's trying to please somebody who went along with him or somebody who cajoled him into going by mouthing some of the words, without faith it is impossible to please God, he's really not worshiping even if he's there in the building. And so I think we should be concerned that we don't give people the impression that they are involved in worship when they're not. But as I say, that can happen in your church building as well as it can happen online. And I do agree, by the way, that you really cannot participate in a service as such online. But I also point out that the Word of God is there in that service. It's there potentially for your shut-ins who can hear it. That's not to be a substitute for a visit from the pastor, for the pastor coming out to bring them the body and blood of Christ, for example. But shut-ins can hear the Word via a online service. People who came to church can hear the word later that day and sometimes do go back and review something in the sermon. They listen to it again. That's still the word of God. It's still powerful even when it comes in that kind of a setting. And so also for the unchurched person. That person, even if they have no faith in Christ at all, they still hear the power of God unto salvation if they are listening to that service and that preaching of the gospel. Well, the pastor ends up the email. During the COVID emergency, we jumped on the cheap and easy solution of posting services on social media as a way to serve our people. Now that the emergency is over, it is time to consider these things with more sober judgment. I'm not suggesting that these drawbacks cannot be overcome or that congregations should never use the Internet. I'm only saying that we consider the possible costs before we move ahead. It might be of interest to everybody hearing this to know that uh, at the 
most recent convention that it had, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod adopted a resolution calling for a study process on Internet use, what it can be used for, what it can't be used for, what it's best to try to use it for. The Council of Presidents and the Commission on Theology and Church Relations are supposed to be coordinating this, and there's supposed to be a lot of discussion coming soon perhaps to a place near you to uh, talk about that very kind of thing. So that's the one email. I know it's a little bit long, but like I said, I thought that that one should get its due. And I really do encourage that pastor to be listening for opportunities to join in that discussion that is coming, at least here in the Missouri Senate. He's a Missouri Senate pastor. He'll have an opportunity to make those very points in that discussion. Here is another email. It's not exactly a witnessing story, It's not the story of an actual witness, but he does tell this Adam of one of the co-workers that he had, a young man working at a supermarket who uh, said he was spiritual but not really into organized religion. And our Adam here just mentioned casually that he actually enjoyed being part of a church. And the young man says, no kidding, I'd like to pick your brain sometime. And Adam writes, boy, what a low-pitched softball that was. So they started talking, and Adam shared the gospel, said that Christ has died for you, and the young man said he believed that his sins were forgiven in Christ. Well, then they kind of lost touch with one another, and then Adam writes that yesterday morning at breakfast, he says, I listened to the second in a series of issues, etc., segments on evangelism. It prompted me to text this young man and simply ask how he was doing. And he said, boy, he could really use somebody to talk to. I'm paraphrasing here. And so Adam got reacquainted with him, invited him to church. He's hoping for good things to happen as a result of all that. Now, just a couple of things to observe here, Todd. One is, once again, he made a point, Adam did, to mention to his young friend that he went to church. And that did open up a door, just swung it wide open. Also, he mentions that he heard about our series. Well, it may not necessarily be our series that does much, but reminding people of their opportunities for evangelistic encounter is a very good thing and something that maybe we can be doing in the church more widely. And there's one other here. Now, this came with a very long attachment. This Adam writes, Lutheran's don't seem to be too much aware of this side of evangelistic outreach. He says, that is, we should observe caution about giving what is holy to dogs, casting pearls before swine, etc. In other words, the promiscuous communication of sacred truths as if they were a product to be sold to prospective customers. Well, I don't like the idea of treating the gospel like a product to be sold. First of all, it's not any human product. It is something that only God could come up with. It's not to be sold. If anything, it's to be given away. And yes, it is to be treated reverently and with respect and not just casually. And we do have to observe the proper distinction between law and gospel as we tell people the good news about Jesus. Adam here sent along a lengthy tract from, I think, the Oxford movement on reserve and communicating religious knowledge. I'm not going to say a lot about that because I've only started to read it. But let me just tell you one more point that he makes, Adam does, in his email message. He says, witnessing appears to me, that word, 
witnessing appears to me to be an expression borrowed from American evangelicalism, which has given the world such things as the 1970s I Found It bumper sticker and telephone campaign. Well, the word witnessing can be found in the Bible. I happen to agree it's not necessarily my favorite word to use. When you see, for example, in Acts 1.8, Jesus saying, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he's talking there to eyewitnesses who had to be eyewitnesses, who were, in fact, called up into court. And if they were put under oath and somebody said, did you see Jesus of Nazareth alive after he died? They could say, yes, I saw that with my own eyes. I'm a witness in that really almost technical sense. It's more generally that we talk about witnessing for Christ. Now, a very good New Testament word to use is confession, making your confession of Christ to a friend or family member or neighbor. Or the one that Al Berry loved, straight from Acts 8.35, I think it is, telling the good news about Jesus. And... I kind of default to that one. I have been using the term witnessing a lot in this series because that's a term that has been used a lot in the Missouri Synod anyway lately in contradistinction from outreach. Witness is one-on-one, as the term has been used lately, one-on-one communication of the gospel, whereas outreach is the organized efforts of a congregation to reach out to people. That's what we're going to talk about more next week. I want to talk about the kinds of things that the uh, Synod's Witness and Outreach Department have been doing lately with witness and outreach understood in just those sort of specialized ways. Dr. Ken Sherb has a Ph.D. in Church History from Ohio State University. He's Director of Evangelism and Missions, Stewardship and Human Care for the Central Illinois District of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. He formerly served as a theology professor at Concordia University, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and as an assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Ken, thanks. Thank you, Todd. When we come back, it's part nine of our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. Issues Etc. Regular guests Dr. Reed Lessing and Dr. Andrew Steinman are the authors of our Book of the Month for September, The Messianic Message, Predictions, Patterns, and the Presence of Jesus in the Old Testament. This new book is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about The Messianic Message at issuesetc.org. Study the Old Testament through a Christ-centered lens with the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, The Messianic Message. Pumpkin spice flavoured everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Crucem's mugs, featuring your favourite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses or Christian humour. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI. St Paul is the patron saint of the run-on sentence. And of course, chancel culture is practised here. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th 
at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu.